It's Wednesday, August 18th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This looks like a microcosm of America to me. I didn't vote for Obama, um, basically because I couldn't figure out what his agenda was. He wanted to scream, change, 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 change what? Barack Obama was elected in 2008. I was in the Depression for a week because I knew the country was going to be even further on the skids than it's ever been. Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people who are thereupon absolved for, from any further obedience. Every time Obama comes on the TV, which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch a channel to the Hallmark Channel to figure he's gone, then I switch it back. It's the policies, it's the socialism, it's the Marxism. We are done backing up. Done. This president's willing to be obsequious to our adversaries, to denigrate our allies. It's his core philosophy of being anti-American. It's a lot like uh, Germany, Pro, you know, post-war, pre-war Germany, when they said, go Hitler, and then they thought, oh, crap, this guy's insane. Next April, we're going to celebrate the commemoration of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And if uh, things don't change sometime during that commemoration, maybe it's going to give folks ideas about starting it up again. I can't pace around the house gritting my teeth and taking Xanax anymore. i got to get out here and, and do what I can. And that way when the purges do start, they'll know who I am and where to come find me. Oh yes, it's Oz. And it's a brand new Radio Free Oz. How do we know? How do we know? Well, Dave, my co-host Dave Osman, I'm Peter Bergman, your host. We know and we don't know. It's the website that has matured. Certainly you and I have not matured over these few months we've been doing this show because... We're too old to mature, but... <laughs> like like a fine brandy. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just after a while, you just got to leave the cork on. <laughs> yeah, I don't it just know. Gets, it just gets oilier and oilier. Well, uh, what yep. we've done is for since April, when we went um, daily with Oz, we've been on a Wikipedia, wiki-based uh, um, Oz site, which was basically static, but now we have definitely jumped the old gun and exploded things, and we're on a... Deeply sophisticated, thickening as we speak site. No static on the radio. No. Now, it's, it's, it's the same URL, RadioFreeOz.com, but now when you go up, you can do all kinds of things you couldn't do before. If you go to the archive section, for example, each show is is paid, is blogged or paged separately with a complete rundown of the show. You can download it there. You can listen to it, and you can blog on it. Give us your comments. What do you think? Oh, I love that. What else is coming? A blog, A general blog. You know, Dave... General Blog. You knew him, right? He's still in the business. Yeah, yeah, right. I knew him. Yeah, yeah. He was he was one of those defrocked NATO generals. That's came, right. Yeah, wore real birds on his shoulders. Right, right. Yes, not the native people, the NATO people. The NATO right? people. Yes. Well, am I losing my train of thought, or did it already pull out of the station? Okay. <laughs> yes. I, I've got a name for the two thousand or so people that have been downloading as regularly. Yeah, every I got day. a name for them too. Well, no, I call yeah. them the Ozineers. Oz- 
Ozeneers. Like, like Pioneers, but Oz in your ears. Uh, uh, oh, very Oz, clever. Ozeneers. The Ozeneers. Yeah. There's about 2,000 of you right now. And on the blog, we're going to have one coming up. You'll you'll get a little, you come on, register, right? Just come on in and we'll give you a, um, a little form to fill out if you'd be so good, an info form. Oh, boy. Tell, tell us who you are, how you found out about Oz, what you like about it, what you don't, if you share it whatsoever. And then we will, I will commit to basically talking back and forth with the people that, that write in. I know hey, all you have to do is fill out a form. Another form. Another form. And we won't share it. I'll just I'll just live with it late at night going, oh, but wait a minute. There is nobody in Alabama listening to us. What can I do? He won't share it with me. Either. No, I won't share it. I won't share it with anybody except That's when right. I talk in my sleep. Um, so you're going to have that. Plus, uh, Oz has turned out a whole bunch of designs right now as bumper stickers. You've seen one of them on this week's um, splash page, uh, Afghanistan, Yes, We Can't. And you've seen the Sarah Palin bumper sticker, When Fascism Comes to America. we got two more we've already developed. And you'll be able to go up to the Oz Boutique, and you can pull those designs off free if you just want to print them on your printer. Mm-hmm. Or you'll be able to go up to our boutique on Cafe Press and get all kinds of marvelous little merchandise using this thing. You can, you know. Put magnets on. I want my Sarah Palin headband. Oh, you no, I'm sorry. We I got don't. no headband with her. With well, the thing with the Bible and the whole thing on the headband. Well, the thing That's with the I new, want. we thought of one in which we'd send it to Sarah, and it's a headband. She yeah. put it on, and when you put water on, she sweats. You know, oh. it tightens, Ooh. tightens oh, until very, it crushes her skull. Very painful. No, uh, very painful. What a great shirt. Very painful. Okay. Uh, so you can get like you know you can get sweatshirts and t-shirts. No aprons. Nothing too silly, but stuff where these images really will work. Also, as we speak, Bill McIntyre is videoing us, so we're going to have a regular uh, snippet called The Making of Radio Free Oz, where you'll be able to go up and download or stream the the video to see David and I doing our thing. Wow, boy. mm, That's really... Wait till I see what we're wearing. Oh, man. Talk about fashion crazy. Hey, listen, man. We dress for radio. That's right. Plus, there's going to be an Oz team page where you can get to meet the Oz team. Uh, Not too intimately, of course. And then Friends of Oz, you know, Firesign, Dave Dave Osmond's own stuff, and Proctor, and, and Phil Austin, and various other people connected with us. You'll be able to pull that up. And other stuff coming down the line. There'll be more and more merrier. Wow. Well, that's very exciting. Pete. It is, and it's lots of work. Exciting. I am, so, I am so already overstressed, Mister Osman. All right. Well, you'll get some nice blogs, and you'll feel better after yeah. that. As I'd said before, every time I hear the word blog, I still think of this big gooey thing with Steve McQueen standing in front of it, wondering what to do before it eats his convertible. President Barack Obama and the Democratic Party, who have been starved for good news through much of 2010, finally received a generous helping as the 2010 primaries wound up or are winding up. Republicans, meanwhile, were left with several new reasons to wonder whether all the favorable national trends showing in the polls are enough to overcome local candidates who are inspiring little confidence about their readiness for the general election 12 weeks from now. In each of the four states that held primaries Tuesday, the GOP put candidates on the ballot who are tarnished by scandal, gaffes, or some significant vulnerability. The headline victory for the Dems belonged to Senator Michael Bennett, the Colorado Democrat who, with extensive help from Obama and the party establishment in Washington, galloped to a surprisingly wide nine-point victory over challenger Andrew Romanoff, uh, 
A former State House Speaker, Romanoff once looked well-positioned to rally liberal discontent and give the White House a very visible black eye. He didn't come across with that. But the party establishment showed it still had some fight, even in an anti-establishment year. And Democrats, in an assessment that many independent analysis tend to agree with, said the most favorable news for them may have come from the results of the Republican primaries. The GOP nominee in Colorado will be Ken Buck, a county prosecutor and insurgent conservative whom Democrats will try to paint as a Colorado version of Sharon Angle, the Nevada Republican whose uh, rhetorical stub toes and strident ideological profile have weakened GOP prospects there. Weakened, she's going down. Colorado results, combined with Tuesday's returns in Connecticut, Georgia, and Minnesota, and other recent primaries suggest it may be time to scrutinize a treasured 2010 storyline. Hey, this is a storyline that all you journalists have been parroting for the last year because you get paid by the week and you have to write. And that that storyline is an angry electorate determined to punish insiders and professional pals of all stripes rushing to embrace ideological insurgents. It's not that this narrative is all wrong, but it appears to be significantly more true among Republicans than Democrats. Buck, for instance, was favored by some Tea Party activists, but opposed by much of the state and national party leaders. Buck's caught-on-tape remark that he ought to be elected because he didn't wear high heels wasn't enough for Lieutenant Governor Jane Norton to close the gap in their primary, but it'll certainly be used against the Republican nominee in the general election, particularly when they find out that he indeed does from time to time wear high heels. Republicans also didn't do themselves any favor in Colorado's gubernatorial contest by narrowly nominating Dan Mace. GOP leaders had hoped that former Representative Scott McInnes, who had uh, become embroiled in a plagiarism scandal, would win the nomination and then agree to drop out, allowing the party to tap a new nominee who would give them a better chance against Denver Mayor John Hickenlooper, who, by the way, is many points ahead. So there's a great strategy. Let's elect someone who's unelectable, then he'll drop out and we'll find somebody else who's more electable. But look, the Tea Party guy who's totally unelectable won after all. These people are up the river with no paddle whatsoever. But Mace is indeed unlikely to quit, and his recent suggestion that a Denver bicycle-sharing program may threaten our personal freedoms and lead to greater UN influence has only amplified Republican fears about the contest. Now, wait a minute. I've been doing Oz pretty regularly now since the middle of April, and I've heard a lot of crazy confoundia from the GOP. But wait a minute. How does a bicycle sharing program not only threaten our personal freedoms, I could possibly go there, I don't know how, but how does it lead to greater UN influence? Wait a minute. I thought it was the black helicopters. Now it's the shared bicycles. I can't stand it. The gray lady says that as the economic recovery wavers in the United States, evidence is mounting that growth abroad is also slowing and may be unable to sustain the fragile rebound here. They're still calling it a fragile rebound. I mean, is there some government censor breathing over their shoulder as they write this? Or is it just basically 
There's two things you can't talk about here at the Gray Lady right now, seriously, and that's the two Ds, depression and death. A day after the Federal Reserve officials warned that the pace of the nation's recovery had slowed, a trio of reports cast new shadows over the global economy. First came news from China suggesting that the nation's fast-growing economy was cooling. Then the Bank of England reduced its already diminished forecast for the British economy. Finally, new trade figures from Washington showed that American exports were faltering, a sign that Hard-pressed, domestic manufacturers could not rely on overseas markets to ease their pain at home. Yeah, the big propaganda over the last six months was, don't worry, uh, jobs will appear in our export-oriented businesses because other people are making money and it's going to be just okay. Shut up, go to sleep, eat bad food, watch bad TV, wake up, everything's fine. Well, together... The reports unnerved financial markets that were still on edge from the Fed's downbeat news. The stock market tumbled in a 265-point decline that drove the Dow Jones Industrial Average back into the red for the year. The broad market fell 2.8%. We're in August, and a couple of bad reports, and all of the profits for, uh, in the market have been wiped out overnight. The optimism that had pervaded Wall Street only weeks ago has faded quickly. In its place is a growing realization of what many Americans have been feeling in their bones. This is not the economic recovery the nation had hoped for. Yeah, really? You think so? Duh. While the economy is growing again, it is growing too slowly to create many jobs or to increase household incomes. Well, there was that chart we talked about a while ago, which is, if we continue to create new jobs at the level that we're creating them now in order to get back to what we called full economy three years ago, we'll only take to the year 2033. Given the uneven rebound in the United States, meaning the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and dying, and now signs that the world's other economic engines are slowing, economists say Americans may confront high unemployment and lackluster growth for some time to come. Included in that high unemployment should be those economists who only three or four months ago were telling us this was not going to happen. Out on the street, you bums! The trade report from the Commerce Department, which showed exports fell in June, prompted economists to sharply reduce their estimates of how fast the economy had been growing this year. They get the report, they run back to the office, they change the figures on the computer as if it never happened. I, I took economics with some of these guys. Some of these people were in college with me. Come on, you bozos. Get up there. Get Paste on some balls and tell the truth. With the Chinese economy slowing and the European governments tightening their belts to bring down worrisome budget deficits, the fear is that the United States economy will get far less help from overseas than many people had expected. Without that lift from abroad and with domestic spending moribund, the American economy is gradually losing steam. Growth is slowing quarter by quarter. In the final three months of 2009, the economy grew at an annual rate of 5%. That, that, that kicks. Growth then slowed to 3.7%. Doesn't kick so much. And in the first quarter of 2010, it slowed down to 2.4%. We're going to sleep. But after downward revisions to other economic data like inventories and the export figures, even that 2.4% annual rate is now looking too rosy. And many even say it's going to go down to 1%. <laughs> Come on, guys. Why don't we take the rest of the day off? 
With Wednesday's decline, the Dow has once again wiped out all of its gains for the year. It is down nearly half a point so far in 2010. The S&P 500 is down 2.3%, and the NASDAQ is down about 2.7%. And like many of the snowbirds from Canada, will continue to go south. I'm going to start this piece off with another mea culpa. I've mentioned this other under other wraps, but I just want you to know we're about to do a story about minority leader John Boehner, B-O-E-H-N-E-R, which I have been pronouncing as Bomer. Oh, I, I thought you were calling him Bummer. Well, I don't know. Let's pretend, but not. I even had okay. out Hackerthumb had to, I had her doing it the wrong way. And then I got this post up on the Radio Free Oz Facebook uh-huh. right, said, why does Peter Bergman keep calling John Boehner Bomer? And I looked and went, oh, no, what have I done? Mm, so you, it's, you don't have a research assistant spelling it out phonetically for you like they do at NPR with all those millions of dollars. Yeah, right. And, and, and really nothing to say. Okay, this is a blog on Political Wire by Brad Phillips. He says, Mr. Recently, he said, House Minority Leader John Boehner Mm -hmm. was a guest on NBC's Meet the Press. He made some news on the program saying it was worth considering changing the section of the 14th Amendment that guarantees citizenship to all persons born in the United States. In other words, he's jumping on the disgrace, the GOP, and one of the few heritages it holds of which we can be proud. Thank you, Abraham Lincoln. Good night. Spin in your grave. (laughs) Yes, him. But many people didn't hear his words. Mm -hmm. They were distracted by what could only be described by as Representative Boehner's, right? Boehner's Oompa Loompa Orange Hue. What? Yes, on NBC's Morning Joe the next morning, the host mercilessly, without mercy, mocked uh, Mr. Boehner, but they probably called his name, probably pronounced his name properly. They probably did. But also made an important point about distracting the audience. In other words, I got a feeling that this is a sign that he's actually going back to work because instead of spending his time in the tanning parlors, he's spraying that orange stuff. Take a look. Take a look at him on TV. Go up to the YouTube or whatever whatever it is. He is Oompa Loompa Orange. He really looks like he's been either eating too many carrots, taking niacin pills or spraying himself with that awful as seen on TV tanning stuff. Well, he might just want to stand out in the Senate. Come on, you know. Well, he does. This from the Huff Post: Global youth unemployment has hit a record high following the financial crisis and is likely to get worse later this year, the International Labor Organization reported recently. The report from the ILO says 81 million out of 630 million 15 to 24-year-olds were unemployed at the end of 2009, some 7.8 million more than at the end of 2007. It's interesting to get this global perspective on unemployment. The ILO warns that these trends will have significant consequences for young people as upcoming cohorts of new entrants join the ranks of the already unemployed. The world risks a crisis legacy of a lost generation of young people who dropped out of the job market, the organization added in its report. A lost generation, just what we need right now. The report also points out that the unemployment rates of youth have proven to be more sensitive to the crisis than the rates of adults, and that the recovery of the job market for young men and women is likely to lag behind that of adults. It indicates that in developed and some emerging uh, economies, the crisis impact on youth is felt mainly in terms of rising unemployment and the social hazards associated with discouragement and prolonged inactivity. 
In developing countries, crisis pervades the daily life of the poor, said ILO Director General Juan Somavia. Well, this is a really serious thing. We talk about rebuilding Afghanistan. We talk about nation building. We talk about exporting the American dream. Rising unemployment means real dissatisfaction. What does a youth in a, in, in a developing country do when there is no work? The call to jihad, whether it be Islamic jihad or, uh, you know, any other type of radical war is strong because, one, there's nothing else to do and you've got all that energy. And second of all, it's an easy explanation for your problems, particularly if you're in a country that because of the low unemployment, there's low employment, there's little, little money money available to bid, build educational institutions. The infrastructure is suffering. And the real problem, too, is that when you're out of work at that time of your life, it's real hard to get back into the workforce because by the time people are hiring again, the people behind you have been educated and such to which you are not familiar. So you become structurally unemployed. This is a very serious situation, something that has to be taken care of on a global level. Now I can hear the tea partiers just, just, they're just spinning, man. They're spinning and vomiting and spitting. I said UN, I think. Uh, I know there was that uh, wonderful uh, a politician recently, I think he's in Colorado. I think he's the guy running for um, <laughs> governor of Colorado who said that Denver's bicycle sharing program was uh, a way for the UN to take over our lives. So the UN is a real bogeyman. I say UN, people start spitting and screaming. But this is a world problem. And even if we can solve the crisis in America, which is going to be long and hard and difficult and taxing and challenging, we still are an island within a larger sea. Well, Peter, there was a story about a new um, pharmaceutical that women can take it's, uh, if they've had uh, a uh, sexual intercourse and don't want to have a baby. And wait, wait a minute. There, uh, there's you, a product. Isn't that there. why you have sexual intercourse? Because you want to have a baby? That's another issue entirely. Well, I guess it is. I, I, we're not going to talk Wait about a minute. That. I've spent all my life... Oh, I'll have to go talk to mom. Yeah, or or your reverend or somebody. Anyway. Well, my mom is my reverend. Okay. That, that's why I'm so screwed up on that issue. Go ahead, please. I'm Wait, sorry. Here's this new product, called, which is called Ella. I don't know why. It has a strange... Um, has a strange... Uh, uh, let's see, uh, what should I say, uh, you know, history behind this this drug. Um, it is being made by a French company, distributed by an American company, and the pill was originally developed by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, part of the National Institutes of Health, and now named after Eunice Kennedy Shriver. This is this. They decided in 2002 to finance a crucial study to assess the drug's efficiency as an emergency contraceptive. Now, yeah, it's made being made in France, inspired by some division of. Okay, so here's this product. Why is this interesting? <coughs> statistics. Okay, the last paragraph of this story has some interesting statistics. Studies have shown that more than one million women who do not want to get pregnant are estimated to have unprotected sex every night in the United States. A million? <laughs> a million every night. Does the word dumb come to mind? <laughs> okay, well, a million every night in the United States, and more than 25,000 become pregnant every year after being sexually assaulted. 
Oh, and that's a different that's thing a big, altogether. That's an entirely different thing, right, okay, yeah, than yeah. the million who go to bed and get up. Okay, but here's the here's the last statistic. Uh, work upon this It's the now. last statistic you'll ever need. This is the last one you, you're going to get on this show. Half of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended. No, half? It says so in the New York Times. Well, it, that's got to be the truth. I've got to talk to my mom. This is dead life. It's how we live 24 7, 365. Check me. Gas station glasses. Don't care what the masses think about me with my sweet goatee. I'm rocking my dockers with a cuff and a crease. I got that St. John's Bay and the clip for my piece. I look nice. I got dozens of dollars and that's right. It goes straight to my daughters and my wife. I'm a miracle dad, making magic with the checkbook is a talent I have. I roll hard in the yard with a 60-inch cut. Zero turn radius, my neighbors say, what? They be driving by, peeping my landscape. Yo, these greens got nothing on my manscape. Hydrangeas, begonias, crepe myrtles, ornamental turtles. Hold up. Is that a weed in my fescue? Oh no, round up to the rest. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Take my daughter to the party, it's the dad life. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Shooting vids of the kids, it's the dad life. Roll up to the splash pad, 10 a.m., my whole entourage. Hops out the minivan, we splishy splashy for an hour or two. Then it's back to the house, yeah. prepping for the barbecue. Brats, dogs, rackers, whatever. Get me on the Weaver, man, nobody does it better. Call me Lord of the Grill, I'm King of the Coals. Nana's secret recipe, you know how I roll. 1080p, 16 by 9. I'm rocking man cave status with a screen like mine. Keep your peanut butter hands off my 50 inch Vizio. Pop up the corn, roll the Disney video. We got Aladdin, Jasmine, Abu, the genie. With kids like mine, everybody wants to be me. Sing the night song and then it's off to bed. This is the dad life, no more to be said. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Get the mall coaching ball, it's the dad life. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Playing rough, fixing stuff, it's the dad life. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Yeah, you know how we do it, it's the dad life. This is a commentary by Jerry Seiboff, the Wall Street Journal. It's becoming increasingly clear that Americans aren't simply in the midst of hard times. They are in the midst of one of the most volatile political environments since World War II. By my take, the most volatile. The immediate cause of this volatility is clear enough to see. Just a few months ago, there was a chance that an improving economy and progress in the war in Afghanistan might calm national nerves and return the political world to a more normal setting before November's midterm elections. 
Instead, trend lines in both the economy and Afghanistan now seem to be heading in the wrong direction, and that is producing a public attitude hovering somewhere between anxiety and apprehension. If hope was the watchword for the 2008 campaign, fear may be, indeed, more apt for 2010. Yeah, there is a lot of fear out there. And the whole thing about hope in 2008, it's all very well to cast your hope on someone else, but not if it takes away your sense of personal responsibility. I believe this country basically said, Obama can do it. Ah, he's the guy. Yes, we can. But we forgot that it the we is not the imperial we. He's not Queen Victoria. He's just a guy. And we're the other part of the we. Okay, but this snapshot of volatility merely fits into a bigger and broader picture. Today's dark public mood appears to be the culmination of a long stretch of national anxiety encompassing a historical terrorist attack and two lengthy wars followed hard by the worst economic crisis of the last 75 years. The nation is in a period of volatility that started well before this year and may stretch well beyond it. So we said basically it's 9-11, two lengthy wars, and the, you know, Great Depression 2.0, as if they're somehow separate. But the fact is, is that 9-11 was a response, albeit a vicious and unacceptable response to American foreign policy that included one of those two wars. And the recession has to do with the fact that we've been living this un- unsustainable lifestyle for so long that the wars just brought it down. I mean, we're spending a billion a day in Afghanistan. We can't afford it. We couldn't even afford it if it was working. In the political realm, there's no doubt that this environment will produce significant victories for Republicans in November's congressional elections, but the long-term consequences are much less clear. I don't necessarily take that as a given. I mean, that's basically scripture amongst journalists and pundits and economists and and lobbyists and various other, you know, concubines on the general scene that the Democrats are going to be slaughtered in November. I think we're going to have to wait and see. In the words of Republican pollster Bill McInturf, who helps direct the Wall Street Journal NBC poll America, we uh, this is an era of unprecedented, unstable political attitudes. For example, to the extent some analysts thought that George W. Bush era was uh, bringing about a Republican and conservative realignment of the country, or that the election of Barack Obama signaled a Democratic and liberal realignment, both conclusions now appear wrong. Instead of realignment, there is volatility. Well, I got to tell you, you know, uh, during the Bush fascism, a lot of us liberals and progressives, well, not all of them, but me, I didn't go out on the streets. I didn't see any of my people out on the streets except a promenade, you know, and buy. We let that happen, and uh, now you've got this incredible naysayers who are stopping everything in their path in the hope of somehow coming back to power if things get bad enough. It's just stupid, wicked thinking. Both parties are sinking simultaneously. That's true. Normally, if Democrats go down in public esteem, Republicans go up and vice versa. Not now. Despite the fact that this year's most motivated voters say they're more likely to vote Republican than Democrat in the fall, the Republican Party just this week received its lowest positive rating in the 21-year history of the Wall Street Journal NBC poll. So yeah, we're going to go out and vote for the people we hate. 
The traditional American spirit of optimism about the future is fading. Yeah, you think so? In two straight monthly journal NBC news polls, only a third of those surveyed have said the economy will get better in the next year. Notably, this level of pessimism cuts across all income lines. So even the fat, greedy, somnolent rich don't think things are going well. What? You want more of what's left of the pie? And when Democratic pollster Peter Hart, who co-directs the journal NBC News Poll, convened a focus group of a dozen voters in Richmond, Virginia, earlier this week for the journal, a third of those around the table said they thought the country was more likely to be moving in the wrong direction five years from now than it is today. They not looking into a good future. That's just the view of a few people. You know, we got focused again. But it represents a striking variation from the usual American impulse to think life will steadily improve. Nor is the attitude entirely a function of the Obama era. I don't think so either. The share of Americans who said in journal polling that the country was headed in the right direction began sliding midway through the last decade and was even lower at the time of the 2000 election than it is now. Yeah, they were being thoroughly raped by the Republicans, by Bush and Rove and the other putchers. You bet, things were really bad. Actually, as bad as they are now, and we've got real systemic problems, we do have in Obama and the people around him, people who have the wherewithal, the brains, and I believe the heart, to make, you know, to make real serious improvements. But without the support of the American people, it's impossible. Notes on this America, Dave. According to a new poll of over 1,000 people, actually 1,001 people, kind mm-hmm. of the Scheherazade poll, more for some women, weight control is more important than sex. About half of women say they would rather go without sex for the summer than gain 10 pounds. A fourth of men feel the same way. I was wondering, Dave, if you had a choice between putting on 10 pounds or or having no sex during the summer, you know, I mean, would you put on 10 pounds to have sex? Uh, Well, that's a difficult question. I think I probably do put on 10 pounds over the winter. Yes. You know, so that's an entirely different thing. In the summer, you want to go out there and, and, and lose weight. I think this is a bad, this is a bad either or situation these days. Just like America. More people say they would rather shed 10 to 20 pounds during the summer than get promoted at work. They would wow. rather shed 20 pounds than get a promotion. I, I, I understand. I think I understand w- about women who would really rather lose weight. It doesn't matter how you know how good they already look. They always have to lose five pounds. And I think most of them could easily go without sex for the summer in return for the losing of that critical five pounds. That I think would be so. it. I think, think some so? of them are having sex this summer and going without it at the same time. Of course, weight loss <clears throat> could make them feel sexier. About 66% uh-huh. of people say they need to lose weight to feel sexier than they currently do. It mm-hmm. would take mm-hmm. a loss mm-hmm. of 23 pounds on the average to feel hotter. Another poll conducted a few years ago for Fitness Magazine found that more than half of Americans say they'd rather lose their jobs than get fat. Now they have the opportunity to do both. You got to really feel it for the American Muslims. They are taking the heat for all their crazy religious brethren around the world, the nutcase, treacherous, bloody jihadists. And you know... It's as if being a Muslim makes you a jihadist. And that's what a lot of uh, real bigots are beginning to say. Uh, It's as if, you know, being a Jew means you're a Zionist. Being a um, Catholic means you're in lockstep with those scrofulous, sclerotic, 
people in red hats and lots of fancy clothes sitting on top of billions of dollars worth of art that they stole from around the world in the last 2,000 years. No, 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 no. But right now, there's bigots all over this country that have declared war on Islam, and it's making it real hard on someone to be an everyday Muslim observer. Eid al-Fitr is a joyous holiday marking the end of the holy month of Ramadan, and this year it falls around September 11th. And Muslim leaders fear that their gatherings for prayer and festivities could be misinterpreted by those unfamiliar with Islam as a celebration of the 2001 terrorist strikes. Yes, it will be. Glenn Beck and Sarah Palin and all the rest of those hideously awful people ignorant and mean and vicious, they will immediately see anybody that's a Muslim having a good time anywhere within a week of of 9-11 as being thumbing their nose at the death and destruction. Although we must remember, a ton of Muslims died at 9-11 also. The lunar calendar that Muslims follow for religious holidays is creating the potential for misunderstandings, or worse, in a year when American Muslims are already confronting a spike in assaults on their faith and protests against new mosques. Yeah, and on 9-11, you know, we're going to misinterpret their festivities as being ha-na-na-ni-na-na, and some guy down in Florida at the Dove Church, some fraud hopper, is going to be burning Korans. The Muslim Public Affairs Council, an advocacy group based in Los Angeles, is contacting law enforcement and the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division to alert them to the overlap. The issue I can sense brewing on hate sites on the Internet is these Muslims are celebrating on September 11th said uh, Ibrahim uh, Hooper, national spokesman for CAIR, which is kind of like the Muslim Anti-Defamation League, or make it Defamation League. It's certainly really scary out there. The exact date of Eid al-Fatir this year is not yet known. Muslims follow different authorities on moon sightings and astronomical calculations to decide when a holiday begins. Boy, that would be tough on merchants in this country if you didn't know when Christmas was. In North America, the Eid could fall on Thursday the 9th, Friday the 10th, or Saturday the 11th. It's still close enough for Sarah Palin, you know, to get her panties all in a bundle. It is one of the two biggest Muslim holidays of the year, often compared to Christmas in its significance and revelry. Muslims who rarely attend congregational prayer fill mosques to overflowing on Ad al-Fitir. Mosque leaders often rent hotel ballrooms or convention centers to handle the crowds. Families wear their best clothes, exchange gifts, plan special meals with friends and relatives, sometimes decorate their homes inside and out, and organize carnivals for children. It's a good time. Harun Mogola, a New York Muslim leader who speaks regularly at mosques, said mosque leaders have been discussing Eid al-Fatir for months. When we realized that Ramadan would be ending around that time, a lot of people started sitting down together and saying, how do we handle this in a way that's appropriate, said Mogul, executive mayor executive director of Maidan Institute, a communications consulting company. Mughal said most New York Muslims likely won't celebrate the way they normally do and noted that a significant number lost relatives when the World Trade Center was destroyed. Many imams in the city plan sermons on dealing with loss and grief. Well, part of that loss is the loss in America of religious toleration. How could Abraham Foxman of the Anti-Defamation League, the, the JDL, how could, he, how could he oppose the building of that mosque center? Because it was near 9-11, saying that these people have a right to their feelings and their prejudices because they're victims. Hey, I, I'm, I'm an American Jew. I grew up as a victim.
By the way, we also have uh, FM right here. FM over here? Uh-huh. Let me try it. Oh, up in your wife and head in any direction on the freeway of your choice. And we'll see you in a couple of hours. Here at Ralph Spoilsport Motors, the world's biggest, here in the city of fine music. Thanks for the insurrection. And now back to our morning concert and afternoon showtime favorite, The Magic Bowl Movement from Symphony in C Minus by Johann Amadeus Majetsky. This is from Janet Merguia on Politico. The National Council of La Raza honored Senator Lindsey Graham in 2007 for his work on immigration. Graham said, we are going to solve this immigration problem. We're not going to run people down. We're not going to scapegoat people. We're going to tell the bigots to shut up and we're going to get this right. Now Graham talks about immigrant women giving birth in the United States as a drop-and-leave calculation, as if describing animals. This is the surest sign yet that the Republican Party has written off the Latino community in the midterm elections. Janet, you are spot on. They don't want to have anything to do with anybody that's the not-me. Wrong color, wrong attitude, wrong place at the wrong time. The big tent is shrinking as we speak. Once upon a time long, long ago in the state of California, there lived a Republican governor who had abysmal approval ratings and was facing re-election. He, too, decided that Latino bashing was the way out, and so he fostered Proposition 187 upon the land. This was the proposition that was to throw all uh, the children of the undocumented out of school, to, to, to disallow uh, emergency room help to undocumented people. I mean, it was the worst of the worst. Yes, Pete Wilson did win re-election, but his success came as a, and placed a curse on his fellow Republicans. Not one could win a major office in the state until Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's an immigrant himself with moderate and pragmatic positions on immigration. He broke the curse in 2003 by winning the gubernatorial race. And of course, he is now the most unpopular governor in the history of the world and not his fault. Now, we know 1994 was long ago, but there are several reasons why the tale of Governor Pete Wilson and his legacy's impact on California Republicans should serve as a wake-up call for today's Republican Party. Well, how are you going to wake them up? They are, um, they, are, they are asleep in their ignorance. They are covered in layers, in down of ignorance. How are you going to wake these people up? Well, look at the numbers. Latinos are the youngest and fastest growing group of voters in the country. Well, what does this mean? In 1994, three and a half million Latinos went to the polls. By 2008, that was 10 million. And there are nearly 8 million Latinos who are eligible but have not yet registered to vote. They're going to vote if you keep insulting them. Moreover, a half million young Latino citizens will turn 18 every year for the next 20 years, according to Democracia USA. This Latino vote has already been credited with turning several red states blue or at least purple. Yet, Because of increasingly anti-Latino positioning, the Republican Party has been hemorrhaging Latino support since 2004. That was the high water mark when President George W. Bush won 43% of the Latino vote. The man could speak Spanish. He had Latinos in the family. He was a friendly guy. Nobody had figured out just who he was. He hadn't taken off the mask and shown us his Beelzebub face. So... 
We were going with him. Now, John McCain, Senator Dangfence, received just 30%, 13% less of that vote in 2008. A recent survey by the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials shows support for this year's California Republican candidates for senator and governor is in the teens. Okay, the issues. For years, Latino voters' top concerns were not immigration. They were consistently about jobs and the economy, education, and health care, just like every other American. Today, several recent polls tell a different story. Latinos now rank immigration as either number one or number two. And Latino voters who overwhelmingly support comprehensive immigration reform are likely to be looking at how candidates talk about and act on this issue. One major conclusion of the Hispanic Federation League of United Latin American Citizens poll is that Latino voters feel that their community is under attack. Another community under attack. Gay community under attack. Hispanic community under attack. Muslim community under attack. Shall we move on? So, the party leading that systematic attack from Arizona to Virginia to Florida now, by the way, to revising the 14th Amendment should not think you can just come back in the next election wearing a different face as if nothing happened. What, they're going to spray tan on themselves? They're going to go brown in four years and say, hola, forget, we better, we knew, we the new guy. No, you're the screwest guy. On immigration, Republicans are choosing to trade sound national policy for cheap political points. And that's what they're going to be sitting on in November, is cheap political points. Yet they are sacrificing more than that. If they continue, they are likely to receive little support from Latinos, not just this year, but for many elections to come. Rather than trying to win hearts and minds, Republicans have chosen to scapegoat the Latin community in hopes of energizing their base. Yes, they ask for cake? Hey, let them eat scapegoat! The real question is whether the GOP realizes the cost of its actions. The party is mortgaging its future, and it's a toxic mortgage. Republicans' tunnel vision focuses on 2010, but it could mean that they're flirting with permanent minority status. They're not just flirting with permanent minority status. They're not even engaged to it. They are friggin' married to it. Oh my goodness, how I do love them birds. Yes, sirree, this is the Reverend Bill Barnstormer at the first non-sectarian church of science. Fiction. And speaking of sex, well, who isn't? And say thank you for that. Right now, well, they're talking about sex in state capitals, supreme courts, and even the Pentagon. Now, don't kid yourself, dear friends. That whole Adam and Eve lesson is about not having sex with each other, except to have children and say thank you for that, even if the kids do kill each other and can't seem to hold on to a job. And so, our dear friends and neighbors who, who righteously believe that Marion is, is only and exclusively between a so-called man and a self-professed woman of opposite genders, well, dear friends, that's because the other kind doesn't make children. 
say thank you. And their unspeakable ways of, of copulating are no fit subject for man or beast or, or worse. So there's only one answer. Those of us who oppose same-sex marriage are, are all surely just disgusted by the oratal genital way of life, not to mention body parts that I, I won't mention and say thank you for that. Now, now on down to the Pentagon. Well, you know, since our army learned how to rebuild whole societies, societies that were formerly known only, only to readers of the National Geographic, right right from the very village schoolhouse right up onto the military compounds that are bigger bigger even than an Arizona border subdivision. Well, that army needs school moms and, and, and I don't know, visiting nurses and nutritionists and, and wives. So it does not need good men having to, to look surreptitiously around that big naked locker room full of naked men to see if other men are looking at them surreptitiously. It's bad for the morale and it shrinks body parts. I want you to know that. So please, dear friends, if you profess to be gay, and some of my former close friends were, are, well, just stay out of the U.S. Army. There, there's nothing gay about war. And say thank you for that. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer. Until next time. Well, Pete, I, I hope you didn't miss this item down in the college football columns. You can find something in the sports page if you really look hard. Th thank for you, it. David, for doing that because indeed I did miss it. You did. Okay, well, <clears throat> college players will no longer be allowed to use eye black to highlight Bible verses, display their hometown area codes, or support NFL quarterbacks who promoted dogfighting. No, they won't. They won't. The new NCAA rule bans any lettering or messages on eye black and goes into effect this season. Florida quarterback Tim Tebow put inspirational Bible verses on his eye black. And Ohio State's Terrell Pryor displayed his support for Michael Vick, who went to prison for his role in a dogfighting ring. So it's all over, college footballers. You cannot write under your eyes ever again. Forget it. Go home. Don't say a word. The Gray Lady tells us that during the great housing boom, remember the great housing boom when everybody had money? You know, I mean, you could, you could get a home equity loan on your spot on the sidewalk if you were homeless. That's how, that's how easy it was. Homeowners during that great housing boom nationwide borrowed a trillion dollars from banks using the soaring value of their houses as security. Now the money has been spent and struggling borrowers are unable or unwilling to pay it back. The delinquency rate on home equity loans, now get this, is higher than on all other types of consumer loans, including auto loans, boat loans, personal loans, and even bank cards like Visa and MasterCard, according to the American Bankers Association. More people are going upside down on their home equity loans than on their car loans or their credit cards. Lenders say they are trying to recover some of the money, but their success has been limited in part because so many borrowers threaten bankruptcy and the collateral in the homes backing the loans has often disappeared. This whole idea about, well, you're going to hurt your credit rating. The answer is, so what? Join the crowd. The result is one of the paradoxes of the recession. The more money you borrow, the less likely you will have to pay up.
Well, there's a good that you, you just let's stitch that into a little quilt, right? The more you borrow, the less you have to pay. When houses were doubling in value, mom and pop uh, making 80 grand a year were taking out $300,000 home equity loans for new cars and boats, said Christopher Combs, an Arizona real estate lawyer where the problem is especially pronounced. Their chances are pretty good of walking away and not having the bank collect. Lenders wrote off an uncollectible $11.1 billion in home equity loans and $19.9 billion in home equity lines of credit in 2009, more than they wrote off on primary mortgages. In other words, home equity loans are totally toxic. So far this year, the trend is the same, with combined write-offs of almost $8 billion in the first quarter alone. Even when a lender forces a borrower to settle through legal action, it can rarely expect more than 10 cents on the dollar. People got 90 cents for free, Mr. Combs said. It rewards immorality to some extent. No, it totally rewards it, you know, and it punishes the banks who are improvident and duplicitous and cunning in the the ability they gave people to borrow huge amounts of money on almost nothing. On a bubble. Nobody looked at the bubble. Utah Loan Servicing, that's a nice name for this debt collector that buys home equity loans from lenders. Well, their man, Clark Terry, says he does not pay more than $500 for a loan regardless of how big it is. Anything over fifteen to 20000 is not collectible, Mr. Terry said. Americans seem to believe that anything they can get away with is okay. Yeah, that is kind of a common philosophy in this country. But the borrowers argue that they are simply rebuilding their ravaged lives. Many also say that the banks were predatory or at least indiscriminate in making loans and nevertheless were bailed out by the federal government. Finally, they point to their trump card. They say they will declare bankruptcy if a settlement is not unfavorable terms. It is immoral, right? It absolutely sends exactly the wrong message to anybody who's listening, if anybody is listening. And I love the fact that the borrowers argue that they are simply rebuilding their ravaged lives. What is their ravaged life? Minus the pearls and the boat and the ski machine and the latte maker. What is it that has ravaged their lives? What have they had to give up that makes things so impossible? I'm not going to be a slave to the bank, said Sean Schlegel, a real estate agent who is in default on a $100,000 home equity loan. His lender obtained a court order garnishing his wages, but that was 18 months ago, and he hasn't heard from them since. The case is sitting stagnant, he said. Maybe it will just go away. Yeah, we lost our moral compass. We don't know which way we're heading. The amount of bad home equity loan business during the boom is incalculable and, in retrospect, inexplicable, housing experts say. Most of the debt is still on the books of the lenders, which include the Bank of America, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan Chase, i.e., they are hiding all sorts of uncollectible debt. Darian Bolton, the software engineer, here's an example of a fine American, defaulted on the loans for his house in a Chicago suburb last year because we felt we were just tossing our money into a hole. No, you were paying back a loan, you schmageggy. This spring, he moved into a rental a few blocks away. I'm kind of banking on there being too many of us for the lenders to pursue, he said. There is strength in numbers. 
There is no moral fiber in numbers. There is no taking responsibility in numbers. There is not even a future in numbers. There's just numbers in numbers. Well, the last item, Pete. I just I'm trying to rescue this before the show's over. I, I, this is obscure battles around the world. And uh, your question is, where is this battle happening? Okay. okay. All right, I'm ready, All right. sir. At least five government soldiers in the semi-autonomous region of Puntland were killed on Friday in a gun battle with militants near the area of Galgala, Puntland's security minister said. In a radio interview with Horseed Media, an insurgent warlord claimed credit for the killings and vowed to continue our fight until we overthrow the Puntland administration. In response, the police arrested the director of Horseed Media, naturally, who reported on, on the story. Horseed Media is located in Busaso. You got me, David. Could be in any one of those. It could be, I don't understand. It could be possibly in that area. Let me right? tell you, Pete. Or this, maybe it's in Lemonade Stand. No, I don't know. No, this is or how the, about let's let's blow this pop stand? I don't uh, know where it is. Yeah, this is this is where the next war is really coming from. Somalia. Oh no. Yeah, Puntland. Look right, out for Puntland. Before I start mentating on that, give me some tang, man, because I I, I just this is too much. Yeah, this is much okay. Of, All right. Here's here's a beautiful little tang poem by Tu Fu. On the Feng Ya Road. Good. I'm there now. I'm mm. not in Somalia with the horses. Well, you might that. be. Here we go. All right. I remember when we fled from the rebels, heading north through danger and hardship, starting out in the middle of the night with the moon shining on the Po Shui Hills and all of us on foot. Whenever we met people on the road, we felt ashamed. Now and then, birds sang in the ravines. No one was going in the opposite direction. My silly little daughter bit me in her hunger, afraid that her crying would bring tigers. I held her mouth against my chest. She wriggled free and cried louder. My son acted like he knew what it was all about, but he kept trying to eat the bitter plums on the roadside trees. Ten days we went, half that time through thunderstorms, struggling to help each other in the mud. We had no protection from the rain. The road was too slippery. Our clothes were too thin. Some days we couldn't cover more than a couple of miles. Our food was wild berries. Our shelter was low branches. Mornings we waded the flooded creeks. Evenings we crouched in mist at the sky's edge. We stopped near Tung Chia Marsh before crossing the high pass, and my friend Sun Tsai took us in. His generosity reaches to the clouds. We arrived in pitch dark. They lit the lamps, opened the gates, brought warm water to bathe our feet, cut silhouettes and burned them, calling back our frightened spirits. His wife and children came out to greet us. When they saw how we looked, they burst into tears. My children, exhausted, had fallen asleep. We woke them so they could eat from the platters of food. You and I, Sun Tsai said, will be born brothers. And the hall was put at our disposal, and we were told to feel at home. In these bad times, where do you find that kind of trust? It's a year since we left there. The Tartars are still on the rampage. Sun Tsai, I wish I had wings so I could fly straight to your house to see you again. 
Yeah, well, we're flying. We're flying on RadioFreeOz.com. Oz team makes it possible. Peter Berkman, I'm your host. David Osmond, my co-host. Yo. Bill McIntyre is TVing us. He is the producer. Dave Maloney is recording us. He am the audio expert. Chaz Glass, well, he is Mr. Finance. He's teaching me all about budgets. About time I figured it out. Scott Wild does our social media, and he's growing our our fabulous website. Go on up and check it out. John Cummins keeps us honest with the ones and zeros. Tom Gedwiller makes sure the website is chugging along. And Phil Fountain, well, he's just beautiful. See you all tomorrow when tomorrow comes. <laughs>